0: This episode is brought to you by Buyers Agency Australia.
1: And it was just a, you know, an oldish and quite an old, run-down house in Punchbowl. Um, you know, renovated it a bit and rented it out. And I really had no interest because I guess at that at that point in my life, I was just wanting to have fun, <laughs> you know, go out. Um, you know, I didn't want to have a mortgage, a debt, at, at that point. So. In a way, my start in property investment was very reluctant (laughs) and had to be pushed.
0: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Chi Lam, devoted husband, father, director and founder of his own company. His earliest memories are something most of us can't even imagine, which is to escape from Vietnam as refugees on a small boat. But using his resilience and strength, he came out the other end all the better for it. Chi Lam is the embodiment of having your cake and eating it too. However, that's not to say he hasn't overcome his fair share of challenges. His childhood was less than perfect and contained some harrowing experiences many of us could never dream of. Today, he runs a business and is a full-time hands-on dad to his kids proving you really can have it all.
1: My title at the moment is a a director of a company that I uh, I founded. Um, That was the side business uh, which was originally a side hustle. And now it's pretty much my full-time thing although my my time during the week is split um into various things um i'm the primary care of, of 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 my girls uh i've got two girls so you know i'm the one that picks them picks them up from school uh drops them off uh take them to after school activities and all that sort of stuff so my wife works full-time so i you know i my, my time's very much split uh, as to what's needed but the business has its um you know it's 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 a it's a case of uh, how much time I can put into it is, is what I get back so and, and there's no you know 9 to 5 with the business so it's just obviously when orders come in um, you, I have to deal with those um, fairly quickly but apart from that yeah the time's very flexible and that's one of the advantages I guess of, of, of what I've currently got going.
0: Thanks to his unconventional approach to work and family, no two days ever look the same for Lam.
1: There's no real typical day, you know. Like, like as I say, but like generally speaking, uh, since I'm the one that um, drops the kids off, I, I need to get them ready. Um, so get them ready in the morning. Um, I'm very, I'm, I'm focused on fitness these days and, and personal health. So after that, I, you know, I, I might do a bit of work, um, to kind of catch up on any sort of urgent sort of work with the business. Then I, I, I go and I do a bit of um, uh, yoga or you know some or, or, or some gym work, uh, and then um, usually get back into sort of more business stuff until you know and depending on the day i might go and play uh, some touch footy with some friends of mine ex-workmates of mine yep so i like to stay active yeah yeah around lunchtime um so you know we we go we we have like a a local touch footy um gathering every tuesdays and friday so you know if you, if, if the weather's good and we get enough people we, we all just rock up at, at a field in bella vista and just play some touch footy it's fantastic yeah. you know it gets it, it gets the blood pumping and yeah, it's it, it just um, yeah we 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 all really look forward to it. Um, and then after that, it's just yeah either a bit, a bit more work, and then you know um, picking them up after school activities, dinner, and that's generally the kind of um, uh, the the school uh, week. Um, yeah, and when when it's school holidays, it's it's completely like random. It could be whatever the business and all and and kind of work takes us a, a backseat um, in a way yeah. during school holidays. So it's a lot of the cases, it's just like if if you know if we've arranged play dates um, with, with, with the, their friends or then you know, I need to be there or I need to take them there or whatever or, or the kids come over. <laughs> I need to supervise. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, a, it's, it's all a mixed bag when it comes to school holidays.
0: Lam was born and raised in Vietnam for the first six years of his life. Those formative years coincided with some of Australia's darkest times and ultimately saw his family make the decision to leave the country.
1: I still have, I guess, you know, some memories of it. Um, and then uh, we we escaped uh, Vietnam uh, communism, I guess, after the war uh, as, as boat refugees um, and spent about a, well, it was, it was quite a treacherous sort of um, five-day boat journey. Uh, and we we eventually got to um, Malaysia where we spent about a year uh, in the refugee camp in, in Malaysia. So I've got memories of that as well.
0: Can we can we talk a little bit about that? So first six years when you were born in, in Vietnam, because you, you would have been quite young. It's amazing that you remember a lot of that. Can you just explain to us like what was the feeling when you were actually, you know, having to be have to leave Vietnam because of the war?
1: Like I was quite young, right? So I was six and I and I wouldn't say I have a lot of memories of it. It's more moments of and in particular kind of the the journey, maybe because it was quite impactful even at that age. Um how did I feel at, at that age? Like you know, as a kid, you're a passenger in, in in life type thing. You you get carried along. You know, your parents take you wherever they want, and you just along for the ride. Um, but I do remember things like, um, you know, uh, leaving the country in the middle of the night, um, like uh, going out into somewhere <laughs> pitch pitch black um, on on bicycles uh, and and kind of or or, or scooters. I, I don't remember exactly. Um, you know, getting on into a dinghy. Um, out into, out to the bigger sort of fishing boat, which is the the vessel that we uh, eventually came out of. Um, came, well, left Vietnam with in. <laughs> it was it, it was kind of like your typical fishing vessel that you see, um, you know, when you see news articles of uh, boat people coming to Australia. Um, everyone everyone was crammed into the, like the hull. I remember all that. I remember a fair bit about the trip actually. So it must have been quite, I guess, traumatic um, for yeah. me to remember some of that. Um, and. You know, remembering how squishy, how hot, the smell of diesel, uh, nausea because I was seasick. And I think I was actually also ill from some sort of ill, uh, like, you know, cold or flu or whatever Um, for most of that journey, actually. So um, I remember things like, you know, the. the waves, the, the the crazy big waves and, and and being a naive little six-year-old, I was asking mum, why are the waves so big or something like that, something along those lines. And, <laughs> and you know, I can imagine that for the adults, they must have been terrified. Like it's if, if the ocean, you know, you've seen how big the ocean can be and you're in this little 11, 12-metre um, fishing vessel that, yeah, just getting sloshed about. Um, Do you remember asking mum and dad why you're on this vessel? I don't remember that exact that like yeah i don't remember asking them that but it's more of a yeah i don't know as kids maybe you just don't question that (laughs) um yeah but i i I do remember being scared which is the weird thing like being that's probably the first memory of being it's almost like um i don't know if it's too young to even make to have to have these feelings of being scared for your life if that's even possible at, at the age of six yeah like it's like you're just scared because <laughs> you know this is not right. Um, but I guess as a kid, you know, kind of, yeah. It, the, the memories is just kind of fleeting. I guess it's just, yeah. I have I have memories of moments, um, um, yeah, and then, yeah, and and just, but like the the memories in Vietnam were just, um, some of them were just like quite nice, quite good. You know, I remember I had like a little, uh, Bruce Lee toy, <laughs> um, balloons. I remember that place kind of roughly where we lived, and as a child, he's our house in Vietnam. Um, felt so big, but when I we went back there many years later, it's like tiny. <laughs> so I've got just little memories of, of, of um, my life back in Vietnam. It was quite, you know, it was quite nice. But yeah, the, 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 the journey, the, the refugee journey was quite uh, harrowing, I guess. Um,
0: the trip from Vietnam to Malaysia took about five days. And although Lam's memory of it are hazy, the trip made a huge impact on his family.
1: It was pretty rough on everyone um, on the ship because, uh, you know, I think things like food was rationed, um, water was rationed. It's a case of you don't really know how long. Or you they kind of do, but you, you 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 always prepare for the worst, just in case there's not enough. You know, if you get um, lost at sea, you don't know how much how long the food or the water is going to last. Um, I don't know when we got attacked by the pirates. Um, it's, but I think at some initially it started as. Uh, contact with some boats uh, this is what, what Mum told me okay so I, I i um i think she said that the there were initially boats which then um contacted us and then realized that we were not um well, that we were refugees and and we were i guess um easy targets for for the uh i believe there were thailand fishermen um who kind of you know it was probably more profitable to to, to, to rob refugees than to, to to fish at that time because there were a lot of um refugees um doing what we were doing uh, you know paying and to escape the country and kind of carrying with them as um as much gold or or, or us dollars or whatever that, that you, you can kind of liquidate in vietnam without raising suspicion because you don't want to be because you know the the government wouldn't let you leave obviously they and, and they would capture you um uh, and i think we had a failed attempt earlier on too i got because i remember not um one time we tried to go and it's uh we came back in the middle of the night, um, kind of went on a journey to nowhere. <laughs> and as a kid, I probably asked my mum what, what what Like you know, I remember what, what was going on there. Well, why did we come back? I thought we well, were going somewhere. <laughs> but I think that was a failed attempt. Um, anyway, so going back to the um, the refugee uh, trip, uh, after they, they made contact, they kind of realised we weren't, we are were just refugees because I think our ship was painted in military colours to try and deceive any sort of pirates, wow. but that didn't. Yeah so it didn't work so they realized we were a refugee boat and then not long later we were surrounded um by i don't know i think mum said like six or twelve or something like like we were surrounded i don't I can't know exactly but we we're surrounded by these boats and they just basically boarded us um robbed everyone on board um I, my mom said they even took a few of the women um onto their boat i don't know what happened um after that uh they i think my mom said they ruined the engine um my auntie said they they pushed my mum at one point and she almost fell into this hole in, in in the boat like kind of like into the engine bay or something like she must and, and my auntie was quick enough to kind of save her like just grab onto her before she fell, um, and I guess luckily they they didn't kill us and they just kind of left us. Um, I believe they left us uh, with uh, with a broken engine or something that so so the boat couldn't couldn't go anywhere um, and we were just floating. Um, and I think later on another boat um, came by and they were a bit more friendly um, yeah. and they helped us out, I believe. This is all kind of what my mum's told me and, um, yeah, and helped us maybe fix the engine and point us you know, in the right direction. Gave us rations too because I remember at one point we started we started eating. Oh, well, <laughs> I remember like, uh, you know, congee, fish congee. I remember like really fishy congee. Uh, eating that. Um and yeah, it's and, and so we were on our way and I think we eventually made it to Malaysia. And that was a nice moment, you know, hitting the, the the beach and and then it's almost like once you get there, I remember that first night we got there, my mom and my 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 aunties were like, you know, catching up with people that they may have even known back in Vietnam who had made it you know, into the camp. Whereas us kids we were like uh, we were so tired. I think we just fell asleep at the table.
0: I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, you'd be crying as soon as you laugh because of sense of like, you know, we made it. We we didn't die. We we got over the line
1: to arrive in Malaysia. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's you know, my, the fact that my mum and and my parent, um, my dad and aunties, all kind of went on this trip, even though my mum had already lost siblings on a previous trip. Um, I think a few years earlier they. They went, and no no sign was heard from them, so they were presumed drowned um, at sea. And yeah, like it's you know it's, it kind of goes to show maybe at that point in time how bad the situation was in Vietnam for or, or the, how bad the prospects uh, for the future was for for people that they they were going to yeah this was worth it even though it was a, it was risking life and death. Um, and talking to my mum nowadays, she said yeah it's it's hard to believe that she made that decision back then, but she probably forgot how bad it was.
0: He recognises that things could have turned out completely different than how they did and he's eternally grateful that they had the opportunity to start anew in Australia.
1: It's one of those moments where it's like a sliding doors moment, right, where your parents made a decision one way or the other and that, I think, affected our lives tremendously. Um, We had, you know, after coming to Australia, plenty of opportunities here, peaceful country, love, you know, people are great. Um, growing up with lots of opportunities to be successful in life, um, I think those those opportunities would have been uh, very much diminished um, back right. in Vietnam, uh, and right. and and you see that when you go back, um, kind of you know how la- how hard um, our life can be in Vietnam, um, yes. and it, a lot of it depends on kind of the family that you're born into in a way. Um, so yeah, it's like if if it, even if you're a, you know brilliant and 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 great uh, like you know very re- very capable. Um, Your opportunities are obviously a lot less in Vietnam compared to Australia.
0: Coming up after the break, Lam discusses how they ended up in Australia.
1: So then it was a case of just getting the paperwork processed and they would just then, um, yeah, they they would just fly us like once everything was done, um, they'd fly us from Malaysia to Australia. The
0: moment that grounded him and helped him buckle down
1: it was a big uh, moment kind of I remember the first test where I had stuff to where I failed and then I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not as uh, clever as I thought I was. <laughs> he
0: explains how despite being reluctant to get into property initially, it shows that mothers always knows best.
1: It wasn't until we came back that um, I really started thinking seriously about property investment.
0: And that's next. I'm Tarn Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyers agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405105074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call. After arriving in Malaysia. His mother and the other refugees were given a choice to some degree of where to migrate to. Australia, the US and Canada were all possibilities and it was the of family that brought them to Australia.
1: If you were a uh, like women and children sort of group like my, like me, my sisters and my aunties were, you kind of get high priority than if you're a single male sort of thing. Um, we had an uncle who went before us, they they chose Australia i think they got sponsored over by some an australian couple or something to australia um so they 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 came over to australia a few years before um and so we decided we would follow him i guess my mum, um i think my mum had a choice even maybe even america or even canada but she decided to go to australia with this uncle um so then it was a case of just getting the paperwork processed and they were just then um yeah, that they, they would just fly us like once everything was done um that they fly us from malaysia to australia so that part of the journey was was nice <laughs> i still remember being on a plane it's like um you know you, you probably see it as a kid you, you expect to walk up to the plane and look at and, and climb up the ladder but i think it was one of those you know those the, the passageway that you don't really get to see the plane yeah i remember sitting down on the on the on the seat and asking mum, mum, are we on the plane <laughs> like i wasn't sure like i, I thought i was expecting the, the expectations were different <laughs> um so, yeah, that, that was very uneventful. Like, just coming to Australia by plane was just normal.
0: After living through so many changes already in his short life, Lamb arrived in Australia at the age of seven and went into school at the end of year two.
1: We lived in Marrickville at the time. Um, I think we initially, we, I think we. We pretty much lived with our uncle <laughs> um I, I don't think we were allowed to because <laughs> i remember when the landlady uh, landlord lady came around to collect rent we would all have to hide <laughs> while we went to the door and paid the landlady uh, landlord um uh yeah so uh, but eventually we got a, a flat I, uh, we, we uh, my mom and auntie rented a flat in marrickville um and and i went to marrickville west public at the time um first yeah first three uh, so year two year three and year four so that would have been about eighty six or yeah, 86, 87, 88, around then. Yeah,
0: starting school in a new country where everything was new and different certainly isn't easy, especially for a young refugee who doesn't speak the local language.
1: Yeah, it was a big, I guess, shock uh, in a way. Um, first day of school, I remember that not not knowing, not speaking the language at all, not really understanding what everyone is saying. Um, that was quite hard in a way. Um, my they. I was in a class where there was a girl who spoke Cantonese and they got her to kind of show me around the first day or so. And and that was really nice. Yeah. Um, I think the school knew that we were refugees or, or, you know, obviously because we were coming in midterm and didn't speak a word of English. (laughs) Um, but I remember, um, initially probably around, probably the first, you know, few months, um, yeah, just being a bit lonely um, because I didn't have many friends. Um, I think the language barrier would have – and also coming in midterm, right, there, there would have been established friendship groups um, even in year two. Um, and so I do remember times where I was just walking around the playground by myself, <laughs> a bit bored. <laughs> um, yeah, bit <laughs> a bit sad. Um, but I think by about year three, I had formed um, f- uh, friends. I um, had some good friends who I then, yeah, you know, we played at at, at, uh, at lunchtime. I was in ESL for about a year, I think. Uh, so all of year two and then year three as well. Uh, and I think as my English got better and I started to kind of fit into the culture here and, yeah, it just felt normal. It's not a unique story in that, I, you know, when, when, when I read uh, Ando's book um, about how he came over, very similar, um, and... And I think for a lot of uh, Vietnamese um, Australians, that it's all very there. Yeah, it's it's a very common story that gets told around people around kind of my age, around that time.
0: The transitions didn't end there. As Lamb's family moved around Sydney several times, starting from the end of primary school, they moved from Marrickville to Greenacre, where he attended the Selective Sefton
1: High. At the time, the whole selective process wasn't, um, probably as as big it is nowadays, or as competitive. Um, but that was, yeah, that was that was an interesting experience. Um, kind of, it was it was a bit of a shock in in that you know, I would do quite well at uh, I was doing quite well in primary school in terms of academics, and then going to a selective school where you kind of see how um, academically <laughs> um, great everyone was, <laughs> and it kind of it kind of uh, it was a it was a big uh, moment. Kind, of, I remember the first test where I at Sefton where I failed, and then I was like, wow. Okay, you know I'm not I'm not as uh, clever as I thought I was, <laughs> and it was a grounding moment. Um, so yeah, uh, you know I went, I went to school in Sefton. Um, then my parents moved again. Uh, it, so we spent about five years living in Mount Druitt from about Year Ten to about third year uni. Um, so yeah so we moved around Sydney a very bit do you know why why parents continue to move around Sydney I think Marrickville to Greenacre was kind of um, they went from a flat to a house so they so they worked quite hard um, to save up um, and I think at the time the interest rates were bloody expensive too like they were a lot higher than it was today so they would uh, my mom would say yeah they they would work long hours um, doing kind of work that's uh, sewing um basic so you know uh Piece, piecework. So every every government they sew, they get like twenty cents or something. Um, and wow. um, <laughs> um, and then yeah, and so they'd save them enough where they bought a house in, in Greenacre. And I think the move from Greenacre to Mount Druitt was kind of uh, a, a bit of a split between my mum and my auntie. They might, yeah, probably arguments of some sort, and they kind of wanted to. accept um, go separate ways, and they didn't. When they when they sold the house in Greenacre, they didn't have enough to buy back in Greenacre, <laughs> so you had to go further out west. And the only place we could afford was out in Mount Druitt. So we lived out there. Um, and Mount Druitt was very different <laughs> from what it is today. Um, it was pretty rough back then. Um, and uh, yeah, so the travel from yeah Mount Druitt to high school to Sefton was quite a quite a trek in the morning, and and eventually even to uni, you know, all the whole way to the city, that was quite a trek.
0: By the end of year 12, Lam wasn't sure what he wanted to study at university. He chose to focus on an area that interested
1: him, which was computers. I picked uh, computer engineering, uh, computer systems engineering at UTS, um, and I managed to just scrape in, I think. (laughs) My TR just got me into that course based on the previous year's uh, cutoff. So yeah, that's... That's what I did for, it was a a sandwich course actually. So meaning that you had to do like full-time semesters of study followed by um, full-time semesters of work, which uh, was industrial experience, they call it. And it's what you had to um, find. Um, And then, yeah, so it's just like sandwiching uh, work with study so that by the end of six, five and a half years, um, you could come out and 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 say that you've got one and a half year or yeah one and a half years of uh industrial experience so it's only a four-year degree and that sounded good at the time yeah it was, it was i mean it has it has its positives and negatives too i think um it, it is a long time to be in uni uh be studying and i think com- <laughs> you had companies where even though you came out with industri- industrial experience they in terms of let's say um paying you a certain salary they they would say well that doesn't really count because that's like Industri- that's ex- that's like work experience that's not uh you know industry experience So they yeah so there was a little bit of that I, I think and so friends who did like i had friends who did um computer science who was a, well, that was only like a three-year degree um by the time i graduated they'd already had three years of work experience right and they and, and, and they would be on much higher wages and things like that <laughs> so you felt like oh god i spent six years um doing this and i come out i'm just a graduate <laughs> type thing during
0: his studies, he learned that he had an interest in the biomedical technology side of computers, which is using technology in the medical field.
1: So I did a sub major at UTS on biomedical technology, and when I graduated, um, I ended up uh, I got a job at Resmed. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a relatively um, big Australian bio uh, medical device company. Um, and pretty much my career like that, that that was you know and ever since then i was pretty much always in the um medical devices industry um so i went from like resmed uh to i think ventricor at one stage um after resmed and then um cochlear uh but uh yeah that's that's a bit later <laughs>
0: Liam was keen to see more of the world and explore it on his own terms after he graduated
1: from university. I did what um, what, what most people uh, around my age at that time were doing, which was going to like a, a, spend a couple of years in London um, on a working holiday visa, so that's exactly what I did. Um, and it's, um, So after after my stint at Venture Core, um, I think I was in my mid-20s at the time, um, decided – well, actually no, probably a little more late 20s. Yeah, it was like, you know, kind of seen enough of Sydney and gone a bit bored. <laughs> um, decided to do what my friends were all kind of doing. And so we all went over there um, and, and just kind of uh, worked and traveled as much of Europe as we could. Um, yeah, it was, it was a bit difficult because, you know, in London it was, uh, it was very finance orientated. So it was quite hard to kind of get a job that was high paying um, without that prior finance experience. Um, so I think my travels would have been a lot better if I would <laughs> if I'd gotten a like a contracting role, uh, in London. Um, but I end up getting a, uh, a consultancy kind of permanent role, uh, yeah, with a consultant house. Um, the pay wasn't as good, which means we couldn't travel as much, but you know, it was still it was an amazing experience, um, in terms of like for the first time living away from home, um, just being, feeling like really independent and feeling like an adult. <laughs> in my late 20s.
0: <laughs> Turning to property, he admits that investment wasn't always on his radar although he found himself with an investment property somewhat unwillingly. He acknowledges that it was one of the best things that he could have happened to him.
1: I guess when I was younger, I didn't really have that much of an interest in property and I must, I think my my mum and my uh, uncle who was interested in, in property investment, he they kind of pushed me to buy a, an investment property um, kind of around the I think it was around, the, around 2005 um, before we went over to London um, and it was just a you know an oldish and quite an old run-down house in Punchbowl um, you know renovated it a bit and rented it out and I really had no interest because I guess at that at that point in my life I was just wanting to have fun <laughs> you know, go out um, you know I didn't want to have a mortgage a debt at, at that point so in a way, my start in property investment was very reluctant <laughs> and had to be pushed. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think everyone, as you grow older, your, your mindset changes, right? And, and so at that age, I was probably wasn't ready. Um, but, I, yeah, did anyway. But, but because I had a job, I was able to get a loan and bought that property. Um, didn't do much of it with it um, apart from, yeah, just doing a out and rented it out uh, and just kind of left it as is whilst we were in London. Um, and it wasn't until we came back from London when we were, you know, decided. So I, I went with my girlfriend at the time, um, and then we we got engaged, and we came back to Australia to thank you. We got came back to Australia to um, get married, um, and I guess settle down because by that stage we were kind of, you know, late twenties, like <laughs> early thirties. We're thinking about, yeah, you know, starting a family and all that. Um, it wasn't until we came back that um, I really started thinking seriously about property investment. Um, but yeah, even when we came back, so so even after we came back from from London, we we, we bought an apartment uh, in in the city because um, mm-hmm. it was close to everything. We didn't have kids at the time, obviously. We just, we just wanted to, you know, a great location, um, so we bought a one better in Chippendale, and, and we lived there.
0: It wasn't until they had their first child that they realized their home was no longer large enough for them. With space in mind, they decided to head out to the Hills
1: District. And and then kind of uh, I think around that time is when, when I had child, when I had had our first um, daughter that it kind of what was more, you know, the, the things that were important to me um, changed obviously. Uh, family became more of a focus My um, and kind of, you know, future. I guess, um, wealth and you know, security and all that sort of thing. Um, and that, that kind of led me from a full-time, like it, it led me away from uh, working uh, in a full-time job to wanting to invest more and, and to seek uh, wealth via other means. So that's when the property stuff really started uh, kicking off. Um, it was like, I think it was like 2012 um, was when I had a big, and it's interesting because i kind of got the inspiration from my mum and what she did with her place in sefton at the time she she had a a house on a corner block and she built a granny flat at the back um and that allowed her to rent out the front and 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 i saw that concept and i'm thinking this is really good like if you know if 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 i if i buy an investment property um that's on a corner and i was and, and i'm able to build a granny flat at the back and rent it out like and you can rent it out for good money in sydney um yeah particularly one that's on a corner block where it's got its own side entrance like you you can design it such that it's like a little house in itself right so for an extra you know 100 uh, at the time initially it was only like 100 120k um the prices went up over time you know to up to maybe 150 but even that's not that much for an extra 100 150k to get an extra three four hundred dollars back in rent um, for that entire property kind of made it a very good deal. Um, you couldn't get that sort of returns anywhere. Um, so what, what, what I ended up doing was I, I sold the punch bowl place cause it wasn't on a corner <laughs> and the front, I wasn't getting enough returns on it. Um, so yeah, I, I basically sold that, um, and bought a place in Chester Hill straight away with kind of, yeah. Um, and then in that kind of five year period between 2012 to 2017, um, I was just accumulating as much as I could on that strategy, of just buying corner blocks, um, and 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 doing exactly that, like building a granny flat, and you know, also renovating the front house, and then just kind of do like a um, a refinance after everything was done to kind of pull out the equity that I'd put in, or the, and the, and the deposit, and then move on to the next one.
0: He was lucky in that during that time, property prices were increasing. As a result, he was able to keep rolling and accumulated four investment properties in Sydney over a five-year period.
1: I considered investing in other states at the time as well, but it was just for this strategy, I guess, to work. I wanted to be more intimate and involved in the granny flat builds, um, and it was always going to be harder to do that interstate. So it was a case of, well, yeah, you know, just just do it as local as I can. <laughs> I remember at the time I had, like, uh, yeah, I was doing all this kind of. Um, whilst I was working as well, so uh, I remember i had i had some i was using real estate and i had I had to find these corner blocks, which wasn't easy <laughs> um, so, no no so I, I I had all these um I, I got like a list of the postcodes in Sydney I was then able to kind of create um, searches on real that can give me alerts um, I was searching for keywords like corner um um, but only in the Sydney area, and yeah, and so that kind of helped a lot in, in narrowing down the kind of the properties that I I could uh, I'd shortlist, and I'd, I'd then use Google Maps and I'd check out their backyard to see how big they are, and I'd measure the distances to kind of see, oh yeah, that's that, that's that's possible, you know, you can probably put a granny flat in that. Um, so I had like cri- certain criteria that needed to be met before I would even then go and look at the property. Yeah, so yeah. so there needed to be a way to automate some of that to. Um, To make it manageable a lot of weekend work a lot of after hours work yeah like um but it was interesting like like it was you know because you're building um your future it wasn't it didn't feel like work well it was work but yeah i was driven because of that
0: Chee Lam's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. He shares how despite never overpaying, there was one auction experience that threw him for a loop.
1: We got up to a point, it had stopped and and I'd reached my limit and I'd said okay, well that's it, Um, I'm I'm done. I told the agent I was done Um, but the agent managed to to kind of convince me to go an extra thousand, right? So, I was like "All right, I'll put an extra thousand in.
0: The three-in-one investment that wasn't quite what it seemed.
1: It's a residentially zoned um, property. Um, It's a corner block so it fitted my template of of being able to put a granny flat on the back. Um, So I was even thinking at the time potentially could have three incomes.
0: He reveals the surprising investment he made that didn't fit his usual profile but has paid off significantly.
1: And also, around 2017, we also invested in, in, in in a company.
0: And that's next time on Property Investory. Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals? Or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now he's offering you a no obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405105074 to get your no obligation free 45-minute strategy call.